My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So it's a bit of a thrill today for me to be joined by an old friend of mine, David Putnam. So hi, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Matthew. Bless you. And it's been a very busy week for you because you've been launching a major select committee report, which you chaired. It's called, I think, Digital Technology and the Resurrection of Trust. The first thing I've got to ask is, that's a very kind of passionate name for a select committee report, Resurrection of Trust. Tell me about that. Well, you know, three, four, five months ago, we would have called it the renewal of trust, digital technology and the renewal of trust, because it was very clear very early on, this is 13 months work, Matthew, that everything circled back to trust, or as Honora O'Neill put it, trustworthiness, that without that, you were in trouble. And without that, the digital technology companies are in trouble. As in fairness, they've been saying in the last couple of weeks, Facebook talking about their trust deficit as being their biggest problem. So it would have been called the renewal of trust. Things got so serious that I was actually looking for a punchier word. I was also interested in looking for a word which people might challenge to get a kind of conversation going. And I chose resurrection because it felt, A, genuinely appropriate, but B, challengeable. And that seemed to me to be really a good idea. Well, we'll get into the report and its broader recommendations analysis in a minute, but we are slightly formulaic on this podcast and we have a question now, that a new question actually, that we ask all our guests and I'm going to start with that, David. So, David Putnam, what do you think is the big idea we need for the world after the pandemic? I think, Matthew, and this has been thrown into sharp relief by the pandemic, uh, we're going to have to, A, find new ways of taxation. I mean, I shade say with a slight shudder, but I think it has to happen, imaginative ways of taxation. You go right the way back to when I was younger, when they invented what was originally called TVA, it became VAT. And another reality that runs in parallel to that, we're looking at a declining energy sector. And yet for pretty well the whole of my life, I've lived in what you might call a petro economy. And that's declining. What is increasing, of course, is the digital world. The digital world is becoming vast. So the shift from a petro economy to a digital economy, I think, is a, a massive shift and one which were I the chancellor or were any chancellor, I'd be looking at and saying, well, how am I going to make that shift? How am I actually going to get taxation that shifts from the old world, petrol, fuel, energy, to the new world, the new digital world? And I think that's an interesting challenge, actually quite an exciting challenge. And I think it's more important, it's an inevitable challenge. And that's going to be a very big deal indeed. I mean, that is a very big idea. And I guess we can only have to look at the unbelievable cash piles on which Facebook and Google are sitting to think, well, you know, it would be great to get our hands on some of that. But that notion of taxing, do you just mean that we need to kind of windfall grab on some of those immense profits? Of course, Apple's got huge profits as well, Microsoft. Or... Are you talking about a very different model in which, for example, we, the users of digital platforms, will have to get used to the idea that we may have to pay and there may have to be an element of tax involved in that? Well, a little bit of both. The inevitably important one is the second, is the what you might call taxing the flow through. 
these big five tech companies have got $450 billion in cash tucked away. And I can't really imagine that a kind of new Bretton Woods in the spring wouldn't want to eye that rather enviously. But I think it's the flow through that's important. A few years ago, thank goodness for Hansard, I made a speech in the Lords where I posited the idea that we missed the opportunity of having a small levy on emails. I genuinely think we ought to have done it. 1p or 1 cent here in Ireland on emails would have been a very good idea. Easy, quite easy to identify, quite easy to collect, and there's sums of money would have been vast. And the only laugh I got in the laws at the time, big impact would have been that people might have hit reply to all that much more reluctantly. But it could have been done. As I said, when I made, put it into a speech, only one Tory peeress actually came and said, that's really a good idea. Everyone else thought it was laughable. I don't think it's laughable at all. Now, whether it's impractical because of passage of time, I don't know. But it's that kind of thing. We'll have to get used to somehow our digital world being taxed in exactly the same way that you and I know. We pull up at the petrol pump, 80% of what we're pouring into our cars is tax. That's going to decline. So where is the next tranche of revenue going to come from in that form? I mean, it is, a, as you say, it's an idea which is, you immediately kind of think, my goodness, what a kind of radical notion. But moving from emails to what we do even more frequently, which is simply being online, I mean, generally speaking, we prefer to tax harms than goods, don't we? And certainly part of the way we want to tackle climate change will be and is taxing carbon emissions. I think one response would be, well, aren't you taxing information? And isn't that a terrible thing to do? Because isn't one of the great things about the modern world, the freedom of access that we have to any information we want at any time? I don't think so, for two reasons, really, Matthew. First of all, when we originally taxed energy, gas, petrol, we were effectively taxing freedom. And if you look at the early ads that opposed them, Henry Ford thought this was the end of the world as he knew it. The gas companies thought it was the end of the world. So we were, in a sense, placing a tax on what many people thought was freedom of movement. Secondly, you know, as with that, you only got to start sitting down and thinking, well, what forms of information do we really need? And then you create VAT exemptions. We did it very, very well, I think, with that, but beyond children's books or clothing or whatever. So you don't necessarily do this broad brush and paint it right across the thing, but you do look at you know, where do the essential revenues of these tech companies come from? Where can you, as it interrupt the flow of revenues and extract value, as to say public value, social value, from that flow? That will happen and it'll have to happen. So I don't see it that onerous. And to kind of torture that metaphor a little, one of the other things that the automobile manufacturers opposed was, do you remember, seatbelts? Well, seatbelts save about 100,000 lives a year. They've saved literally over a million lives. They didn't want them because they felt, I don't know, it damaged the notion of freedom. So it took legislation to create seatbelts. And by doing so, we did something very, very good, very good indeed. And it was for once very well messaged. To me, creating these sort of things around the digital world would be a very sound idea. What is the equivalent of the seatbelt in respect of young people or indeed older people when it comes to digital information? So this is, I think, fascinating because you're not saying that the digital economy, the platform economy is a bad thing. You're saying it's an incredibly important part of the economy. It's in a part of the economy where there are kind of monopoly profits being generated. And when we have to generate revenue for hospitals and schools or wherever else, then we are going to have to use this enormous new source of value to generate money. But that's not all you're saying, is it? Because I think you also want to direct us to the harms that are generated by the digital economy. 
I am. And I actually think there's an opportunity to simultaneously do it because the biggest single big stick that any government has is its taxation policy. So at the same time as wielding that stick, you can have a proper engagement with, and these are not essentially bad guys. These are not a lot of bunch of Frankenstein monsters. They tend to be very young people who created a business model that ran away with them. That's the truth. Algorithmic volumes which were not their original intention. They just kind of happened, and they did effectively create outrage factories. So I think there's a a very interesting negotiation, I'd love to be part of it, between government and the tech companies that says, look, this is what we're going to do. We have to attack some of your revenues because we've got public services to finance. But let's talk about this. There are things we want and that you do do, and that's very much what our committee was about, our democracy report is about. How can you aid, abet, and encourage the best of democratic principles, the best of society's instincts, whilst at the same time making sure you're not inflaming, either accidentally or on purpose, inflaming the worst? And you think that the same set of policies and the broad approach can address the taxation issue that you've described, but also the harms issue that you describe. As you say, these algorithms weren't set up to generate these harms. They are a kind of reflection of the interaction of digital technology with our own predispositions, aren't they? So in a sense, what they got wrong was not only that they were going to grow as fast as this, but what they got wrong was human nature to an extent, wasn't it, David? Well, I think it was, but we do have all sorts of dispositions. I mean, there are actual laws that try to make sure that uh, drinking is in moderation, that drugs are taken in moderation, or actually in some places not at all. So we have always, I think, as uh, certainly as a reasonably civilized society, the last two, three hundred years, had laws which, as it were, protected us from ourselves. And I sense that that's possible. Do you know, the extraordinary figure, and Matthew, you should check this, but according to a documentary I saw earlier this week, Alex Jones alone, with his kind of outrage factory, had 15 billion recommendations through the social media networks. 15 billion times the kind of conspiracy theories that he propagated got renewed and amplified. That's bonkers. So one of the things we said in our report is we're not opposed to freedom of speech. What you think, what I think, what we want to say, that's fine. It's when what we say, which is pretty outrageous, becomes accidentally amplified by these algorithmic mechanisms that it becomes wrong. So we're saying that the law should look at the amplification process, not the core element of freedom of speech. But that does take you, doesn't it, to one of the most controversial questions here, which is how we should treat these digital platforms. And you do, I think, believe that in the end, the platforms must take responsibility for what they publish. Yes, I think the argument that hopefully has been punctured, but it's punctured a long time ago, was this platforms versus publishers argument. It was always spurious. In a sense, it's very unfortunate. Bill Clinton fell for it in 1994 and passed an act which has caused actually quite a lot of problems. So, yeah, they've got to put their hands up. These people are publishers. They must take some responsibility for what they do. And they should also understand the sheer volume of what goes through their platforms is in many, many respects quite unattractive. Now, they can do it. The most important thing about the COVID-19 crisis, Matthew, is we've discovered what we can do when you apply technology to societal ends. So I think that what you're getting at the moment is a kind of reluctant admission that there's a lot, lot more they could do. What they're trying to do is the minimum whilst protecting what they see as their core advertising model. I'm not sure that's possible. They're going to have to forfeit part of that advertising model in order to become responsible citizens. And how does that work practically, David? So, you know, I know because I do stuff with the BBC, that the BBC only has a certain amount of output and it's got a group of people, 
not beloved, it has to be said, by the creatives, who will contact you if you say something which isn't right or you tell a off-colour joke or whatever it might be. So, you know, you've got a system there of kind of mild internal censorship to make sure that the BBC sticks to its principles and doesn't offend anybody. You know, you are a a filmmaker and again a relatively limited amount of outputs and people who could look at a film that you produced and tell you whether or not there was anything they thought was problematic of that but how on earth do you do that when it's billions of us who are generating the content well you apply a cautionary principle to your algorithmic recommendations that's how you do it that sounds a bit wonkish but i think you probably know what i mean no one's too wonkish for my programs david oh i shall well <laughs> you apply a cautionary principle instead of a libertarian principle, because we've discovered that the libertarian principle is doing more harm than we can actually accommodate. That's really essentially the problem. We're also playing into the hands of what are now commonly called bad actors and allowing them far too much ability to damage our belief in each other. This is quite an important thing. You know, we need to believe in each other. This business of trust, I think, as I said, loomed very, very big in all the evidence we took. So if you harm our ability to believe in each other, if you harm our ability to find ways in which we can begin to agree on the crises that are around us, we're in a much better shape to deal with the future, climate change being obviously the big one, the really big one, a much better position to deal with it than if we are literally set against each other. So I'm sorry to be so granular about this, but I'm genuinely interested in how this happens. You know, I'm on Twitter. It happens to be that in all my years on Twitter, I've never abused anybody and I've very rarely been abused by anybody else. But just imagine the situation. I'm sitting here. I'm, I've listened to Boris Johnson's speech. And I want to say, here's Boris Johnson promising to build back better with all his infrastructure stuff. But actually, it's the same money that's already been announced You know, this is absolute nonsense. Now, that's fair comment. I should be allowed to say that on Twitter. And then somebody else is tweeting the same thing and says the same thing, but says at the end, you know, I wish he died or something like that, which is clearly not fair comment. Now, who and how are you allowing me through, but not allowing somebody who wants to go too far through? It's actually not that difficult. So you've made your comment on this. Your, uh, this other person made their comment. 5,000 repeats of what you've said is fine. No one's going to look up. And you set a number. It so happens that the companies themselves set the number at 5,000. It's interesting. It's within their own rule book. At 5,000, somebody looks and says, hold on a second. Is what Matthew's saying true? Is what Matthew's saying offensive? Does it fall within a, a, the fact check that we've got? If it doesn't, it doesn't go beyond 5,000. That's it. You square it off. It does not go to a million or it doesn't go to 500,000. So what we're saying in, in the report is it's about reach. It's not about what you say. It's about who you reach. And at a certain point over 5,000, you're going to have to justify what it is you're saying. Oh God, so the depressing insight for me is that I've never been noticed enough to, to, <laughs> to, to register in all my years of tweeting. Oh, well. Um, but that's a very good point because we're not trying to deal with Matthew Taylor. We're actually trying to deal with Alex Jones. Right. No, I've got it. Okay. Let's go back to your report, though, because one of the reasons I found your report so interesting was that you didn't want to simply act in relation to Google and Facebook and the other big tech companies. You also wanted to reflect on a couple of other things, which was firstly, the fact that our laws, our democratic laws, the regulation of democracy are completely unfit for purpose in a digital world. And, you know, that is a pretty relevant issue when you think of what's been at play in recent elections and referenda and things like that. So tell us a bit about how your committee felt we should update 
electoral law to recognise the significance of digital communication? Well, we were very lucky. We've quite quickly took evidence from the Electoral Commission. I personally was extremely impressed by their evidence. And it became very clear that things they've been pushing for for a number of years, they'd sort of got blocked actually at the Cabinet Office. We could go and endlessly about why that might be the case. In evidence, I think it was in evidence or maybe a conversation, the two political parties, Matthew, this I hope will shock you as much as it did me, refused to turn up. They were no-shows for oral evidence. They then subsequently sent in written evidence And there were actual porkies in their written evidence. And what became really clear is these guys, one of them used the word edge. We need to have a bit of edge. What they really mean is they don't want to be interfered with at the time of an election or a referendum or anything else. They want, as it were, the right to roam. They don't want to think that Boris's bus, had it said Purcell washes whiter, would have been taken off the road but it can make a political claim and be left on the road. They feel that that's essential to freedom. I totally, personally, speaking personally, disagree. Happily for me, so did the whole of the rest of this all-party committee, that there's things going on here which are wrong. I'll give you one just small example. Digital idents on political ads. You have no way at the moment of knowing who's paying for them or even which party they're behind. This is generally agreed about 18 months ago to be wrong. The One way or another, the government managed to not get that legislation through, even as a piece of secondary legislation. So we're still stuck with the situation. If there are an election tomorrow, you've still got no digital idents on the ads. So digital ads can lie. You won't know who they're coming from, and you'll never know who they're being paid for. That's ridiculous. What's that got to do with even 20th century democracy? Forget 21st century democracy. Yeah, it is an interesting thing that came to me when I was reading your report that, you know, Guinness can't say any longer Guinness is good for you, even though I don't think anybody really took it literally, but you know, it's not true. So therefore, you can't say it, but you can say what you like in political advertising. I thought that was a kind of powerful. And the uh, fascinating thing was the two major parties defended that situation. They think that's, you know, the rough and tumble of politics justifies whatever you say. Well, let me come back to another point. We used a stress test for our report, which was a very good one. Do you remember the Nolan principles when they were they emerged from cash for questions? Nolan principles are the seven principles of public life set up by the Commission for the Standards in Public Life. And they're there. They've existed for 25 years now. They are very sound. And it would be great if they were just being observed. I do. And another thing that was great about your committee was reminding me of those principles. They are actually there. So the idea that you're in public life, but at the time of an election, the Nolan principles are parked is madness. You know, the Nolan principles, they're very well written, very well thought through, and they ought to be kind of axiomatic for people operating in the public sphere. But frankly, they're not. I am reading at the same time as I read your commissary report, as I'm reading Nina Jankovic's new book. And her book is about Russian interference, you know, the deliberate attempt by Russia to influence public opinion and elections and other things. And the thing she wants to argue very strongly is that we can't simply have a technological response to this. She describes that technological response as whack a troll. You know, you go from one bad account to another bad account but it'll just keep popping up. She says, you have to think about what it is that is being exploited with fake news. She argues that very often, for example, the Russians don't tell lies. They just amplify things and they make sure that people read things that are going to stir them up and drive polarisation. And the reason I'm saying all that to you, Dave, is because another element of your report is about education. That is, whatever we do, however we regulate, we also, to build the resilience of the nation, a a word that is often used at the moment. We need citizens who are better attuned to the dangers of misinformation and disinformation. 
Well, that's a really great way of putting it. I mean, I would say that our report is about how do we get back into the trust business. The business the Russians are in is the doubt business. If they can sow doubt, if they can seed doubt into our processes, be our democratic processes, our social processes, our ability to agree with one another about anything, they've won. It's like an away draw. They're living in the world of the away draw all the time. Basically, it's a kind of win. And you're right, we devoted an entire chapter to the whole world of digital literacy. And here we're extremely critical of successive governments, not just this government. The analogy I used, and I think it's not a bad one, is it's like the computer is like a bicycle. You buy a kid a bicycle, but you don't teach them the highway code. So they come up to the first crossroad. They're looking up. There's three lights up there, red, amber, green. What do those mean? So unless you simultaneously teach people how to deal with computers as technology, but also what that technology can do, what, how they get fed information, what that information is, you're in trouble. And I'll just rattle on for a second. We were very impressed by the evidence we took from Estonia and from Finland, where they, because it's existential for them, because they got the Russians on their doorstep, in the case of Estonia, 20% of their population is Russian, they know that truth and facts and fake news are really, really big issues. So their program through school for the age of four is to try to ensure that Estonian kids understand when they're being lied to and to interrogate information, to understand information. Well, if the Estonians could do it, the Finns could do it, why on earth can't we? If I was cynical about this whole debate, David, what I would say is that every few months we are reminded of the fact that our infrastructure for taxing, for regulating, for informing ourselves about the digital economy, there's something that brings it back into the public eye. We become concerned about it again. And then what happens is that Facebook tell us they're going to do something, set up a new committee or put some kind of new warning or things. And Google tell us they're going to do something as well. And they've got enormous public affairs teams, of course. And ministers come out and say, oh, yes, no, we will definitely do something. We're going to look at legislation. So for a week, there's a kind of concerted attempt to reassure the public that something is happening. We all then get bored. We wander off. Something else comes along. And it's only when someone like you looks at this in earnest that you realise that Despite all these promises, despite all these tweaks, in the end, the fundamentals haven't changed. Is that too cynical? No, it's not at all cynical. Unfortunately, it's exactly the conclusion we came to, is that the plethora of announcements you get out from Facebook and the way in which they hide behind, for example, the freedom of speech argument, it's an inaccurate argument that they pose. No, we ceased, I'm afraid, we ceased to believe in them. And the Financial Times today and its leader about this subject quite rightly says that they've got themselves to blame for not being believed because they never quite deliver on the promises they make. But the great thing about the recent crisis is we've proved that they can. We've proved that the black box, those algorithms, can be changed. And one of the pleas we make in the report, I think quite extensively, is that independent researchers are allowed into those black boxes to actually see what's in them, what can be changed, and whether they can be made more, frankly, more pro-social. But there are tremendous resistance on the part of the organisation to allow anyone to really check. They will tell you that they've got research going on, but it's research paid for by them, controlled by them, and they decide actually what then emerges as the findings. That's not the way this world works. The most encouraging thing for me is we mentioned tax. I mentioned the fact that the CMA today announced a full inquiry, which is great news. The fact we have Ofcom, you and I were around the time Ofcom was created, we suggested additional powers for Ofcom. We've got a brilliant ICO in Britain, Elizabeth Denham. She's very clear about what needs to be done. The Law Commission just spent nine years recommending changes to electoral law. We agreed with every single thing they said. 
the electoral commission. What you've got this lineup of, I would say, reasonably expert people, and what you're saying quite rightly is, we've got a series of ministers, a who don't last five minutes in most cases, who are really quite cynical, and. We took evidence from a very nice woman, Caroline Dinage, who is the person responsible for the online harms bill. I think she's genuine. I think she's sincere. It's absolutely clear when you read her evidence, she's been blocked. The online harms bill, which was originally emerged under Karen Bradley, was picked up again by the next Secretary of State, has been stuck. I use the expression in the Today programme. It's been pushed into the weeds, not in the long grass, literally the weeds. The government don't want it. They don't want it because they're not really prepared to take on the tech companies. They're frightened of them. And because they see themselves as having a few narrow advantages with the way the world is, as opposed to the way the world should be, if, frankly, our recommendations were taken advantage of. So, David, your report, Digital Technology and the Resurrection of Trust, or the report of your committee, is easily accessible using one of the platforms that we've been discussing or any other platform. And there are now more and more platforms that have different kinds of values than Google that people might want to check out. But we've got one minute left. I want to ask you one last question, David, which is that your passion before you got into the area of digital democracy, the digital economy, was climate change. And you did a lot of incredibly powerful work around that, the establishment of the Climate Change Committee, etc., In a minute, are you more hopeful that one of the consequences of COVID-19 will be that we finally do what we need to do to tackle the climate emergency? In one respect, yes. I would like to think that young people, particularly young people, have understood what the price you'll pay when there is a calamity. This will appear to be something of a dress rehearsal if we don't actually tackle climate change properly. And one thing I'd recommend, and Matthew, you could help with this, we've all come to understand what R means. We know what R is and we know the ramifications of R. What climate change needs is its own R. We need to know all the time where we are on the R scale. And if we can hammer that home, and if people will remember what they went through for 14, 15, 16 weeks, maybe we could get some action. Well, David, you started with a big idea and you've ended with a big idea. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Matthew, thank you very much for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.